Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Hello there, listener. Apologies in advance here for offering you a wee glimpse into the sausage production facility, but I want to share something here. You have no idea how many times producer Keith and I will sit down, listen back to an episode, approach the edits, and I'm struck with the task of, oh my God, how do we distill this episode down into a two-minute introduction, roughly? And today's episode is absolutely an example of one of those occasions. So I'm going to keep it quick. I'm going to stick to the facts. I'm not going to try and be cute or clever. Today, we have Richie Bacato in the studio talking about the Jungle Bird. Now, Richie has a very special connection to this drink. I'll leave that for the episode, but all I will say is that we can consider his first encounter with the Jungle Bird as the butterfly wing flapping moment of this cocktail's current day popularity. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is the Cocktail College podcast, so yes... We're going to throw in a few septuagenarian Hungarians for good measure, and we will also be discussing the relative merits of standing on the shoulder of giants or in their shadows. Richie Bacato, folks, the Jungle Bird. So I'm going to say we are here in the Cocktail College studio. We're about to chat Jungle Birds, and we have Richard Bacato joining us today. Richie. That's me. How's it going? Life is great. Life is great, Tim. That's very nice to hear. Um, And I do hope you don't mind me calling you Richie because I feel like the name Richie Bacato, if you'll allow me this this short sidestep, is an amazing bar owner name. I can imagine, oh, have you been down to Richie Bacato's place on 5th? Like, as someone not from America hearing that or whatever... um, I'm just like that's perfect. It's 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 it was written as someone who is also theoretically not from America, but raised right here in New York City. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That's just what my mother always called me, Richie. Richie. That's it. Um, so yeah, we are talking Jungle Birds today. Um, I think it's interesting. I think this could be said about a lot of the different cocktails that we cover on this show. But had this podcast launched ten years ago. I definitely don't think this is maybe a, a drink that we'd be sat here talking about because it just simply wasn't being made at that many bars 10 years ago. And yet now you can go to many bars here in New York City, but also in different cities named after this drink. Which is beautiful. Uh, 10 years ago, 2012, I was still owning, operating and working at a tiki bar here in New York City. And I'd recently done a very big revamp of the previous menu that we had been running with at this bar. And it was a meticulously, um, it was a, it was quite the operation to pour through all of these cocktails, choose the ones that we thought best represented the bar and what we were trying to accomplish there at the time. Um, and of course, tasting. Um, it took months and when it was all said and done, the drink we're talking about today was a prominent 
uh, mm-hmm. heavy hitter in mm-hmm. that menu. Um, and I think it's one that appealed to both civilians, as we can call them, or yeah. guests, and and bartenders and, and aficionados, uh, cocktail conoscenti, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, it appealed to everyone, and it hit all the right notes at the right time. Uh, pound for pound, probably one of the best within the canon of what is considered the tropical cocktail uh, milieu. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point that you make there in terms of guests, but also industry folks, because as we will explore, this is a drink that has a pretty simple formula, has has ingredients that you don't need to go too far to find, or a lot of people just at their homes might have them, even if they're not, you know, industry pros or whatever, or even if they don't, they know what they are. And yet the results that it yields is this really incredibly complex, delicious drink. It's incredible what um, what bartenders have done with this cocktail. And it makes you think like with uh, any other recipe from days of yore, the, the progression from when this drink was first created to when it was initially written about and published in a bound periodical to it being rediscovered Mm -hmm. roughly a decade ago and what has happened since then and all the variations that modern bartenders have brought to Mm -hmm. this cocktail has actually been incredible to witness Uh, it's delicious all the time and it's very apt that you say that because i i know you have uh come come armed with some some (laughs) some fine words and let me tell you I do enjoy it when our guests come prepared with a little something for us. It's always fun. But um, yeah, just a very natural seg there to, <laughs> in, into something I, I, I know that you wanted to quote, and I think it's a real great point. Yeah, so there's, uh, if I may, we can talk a little bit about the history yeah. of this drink because it's always important and it's, it's good to know it um, as best we can. Um, so by most estimations... The initial incarnation of this uh, jungle bird cocktail that we're talking about today came to be um, at the hands of a bartender by the name of Jeffrey Ong Sui Tyke. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not, I, I mean no disrespect to his legacy or his family. Um, but this was served, as most people agree, at the Aviary Bar in the Hilton Hotel in Kuala Lumpur, mm-hmm. Malaysia. The date that most people attribute to the uh, early beginnings of this cocktail would be sometime in 1978. Uh, late 70s is probably accurate, although it is thought that this drink might have been served as early as 1973 when the uh, hotel or the bar first opened at the hotel. So that's the humble beginnings. Um, in 1989, John J. Poister published a book known as the uh, New American Bartender's Guide. And this Jungle Bird cocktail was featured in in the book. Um, And in 2002, the inimitable, notorious uh, Jeff Beachbum Berry Mm -hmm. printed his interpretation of the Jungle Bird cocktail in his influential tiki cocktail book known as Intoxica, which is a great name. Uh, for a book, for a band, for a bar. It's, it's an incredible name. Um, so it's my opinion that this, Jeff's uh, discovery of this cocktail or, or printing of this cocktail is how the Jungle Bird gained traction and international 
recognition. And, and so Jeff Barry really deserves all the credit for uh, bringing this cocktail to the forefront. Um, so the original recipe for the Jungle Bird that we see in Poisters, or not the original, but the one that we see in Poisters' book, doesn't ask for a specific type of rum. Uh, in fact, he only specifies dark rum to be used. Um, Jeff Barry specifies Jamaican rum in his uh, spec, but he doesn't specify which kind of Jamaican rum. So it, this is great because it gives the bartender myriad choices uh, whenever they, they, they opt to make this cocktail. Um, so this is where... I come in, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, in terms of what I'm going to say as far as rediscovering this cocktail for the modern palate. Yeah. Um, and again, this is a lineage. This is a progression. So my history as a bartender, going back to 2005, working at Milk and Honey in Little Branch here in New York City, um, we did not feature too many drinks from the Tiki Pantheon, if you will. Um, And we can talk about what that means now, um, because obviously back then we didn't have uh, a a knowledge of these cocktails, or at least a a very deep knowledge. We had very few cocktail books behind the bar, really. We we had uh, the Savoy cocktail book. We had, uh, ironically, Trader Vic's Bartender's Guide was actually one of our staples. Because if you look in that book, uh, most of what you find is beyond the Mai Tai. There's, there's a lot of things that are uh, stirred and served straight up. Um, so from that school, tiki and tropical drinks were not prominent. Um, and my mentors, uh, Sasha Petrosky and Joseph Schwartz and my esteemed colleagues um, who are all legendary bartenders in their own right, many... Many friends of the yeah, show. Yeah. Uh, Sam Ross... Michael McElroy, Lucinda Sterling, who gave you a brilliant interview about the, the Ramos Chin Fizz. Yeah, brilliant. Um, these are these are the the and and Christy Pope and the, the list goes on. I was I was standing in the shadows of, of giants every night in service. Um, but can not, I ask, can I interject for a second as well? What was that? What was that kind of um, period like? And this is a sidestep, but you know. Sasha's bars and 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 many of the names that you mentioned there have come up come up so often in this and I just want to know what it's like because I, I see it kind of like as a as an enthusiast who, who arrived after the fact and whatever and you see these names and they're, and they're legendary names but what was that like night you know night after night being there on the side by side well the early days I was the doorman Tim so uh, and and this is a true story um, most of my coworkers because I thought at the time I wasn't actually allowed to come inside. I thought I had to stand outside that I didn't understand. I was actually allowed to come into the, to the establishment. Uh, I also didn't understand that I, I I thought I would be paying for my drinks because these were, these were classy joints and (laughs) drinks at that time were, although a lot less expensive than they are today, they were still up there as far as a price point. And on several occasions, uh, I would come in from the cold after my shift, and nobody knew me or knew my name. Uh, and I remember Eric Alperin charging me for drinks a few times. Uh, I think Mickey once or twice. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I knew, um, I knew that when I was there, I was in the middle of something important, and it, it felt, uh, it felt like a real privilege uh, every time yeah. I went to work because. 
eventually I was given the opportunity to come in from the cold and, and start understanding what the service model was and getting acquainted with that style of service was uh, an experience I'll never forget. And my first couple training shifts behind the bar were daunting, but at the same time invigorating. Yeah. Um, and it's a time I'll never forget. And I believe it's a time that did change the way cocktails are made, shaken, stirred, served, mm -hmm. and sold all over the world. And this is something as well that I've always wondered too. And I think it can be said for so many different periods of history. Like, how aware were you of it at the time, just kind of culturally, like that this thing was happening or were you in the eye of the storm or it was so nascent that perhaps it was very difficult to see? I was practically unaware. So to preface this, Sasha used to tend bar at a place called Vaughn uh, on Bleecker Street. Beautiful, legendary bar. As did Joseph Schwartz and Louis Schwartz and Cervantes, Vladimir, and, and many other bartenders and friends. So, Ramirez. So, prior to being within the fold of Milk and Honey and Little Branch, I, I had a, a connection with these bartenders and, and we would spend a lot of time already at Vaughn. And uh, prior to that, there were connections from high school as I'm a New York City native uh, with credentials from kindergarten through college. Ultimately, it's very, it's, it becomes a small town. Yeah. So there were people that, uh, younger siblings of Sasha's that were friends of mine. Mm -hmm. So we all crossed paths even in those early days. Yeah. Um, and TJ Siegel, uh, legendary inventor of the Gold Rush cocktail. Incredible drink. We'll mention that actually today. Um, so he and and Sasha were in similar circles, although maybe a few years older. So um, friends of friends, friends of siblings. I, I, I guess it didn't strike me until the first couple evenings when I had, and, and even having been a customer, as a knucklehead customer at Milk and Honey, I would show up there in the very early aughts, not knowing a damn thing, uh, not understanding anything yet, remembering that I was treated with the utmost patience and respect, and it gave me a true appreciation, even when I had no aspirations to be a part of the organization, if you will. It just made me feel... Uh, very very special once i did become a part of it um I'll that's magical yeah i'll never forget in 2000 i went to milk and honey and ordered a dirty vodka martini which is a brilliant cocktail made correctly but back then i didn't know anything about it and sasha didn't blink just made it for me and yeah best one i've ever had incredible and you mentioned earlier as well sort of at the beginning there you were talking about kind of standing in the shadow of giants i would argue you could also say in the realm of this conversation standing on the shoulders of giants when we're with respect to the jungle bird and the journey when your paths cross the jungle bird and 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 your path in the bar by this point so you said you know 2000 you go into milk and honey you weren't in the industry at the time but we're fast forwarding what almost like 10 years now by this point so 2009, Sasha and I uh, opened Dutch Kills together in Long Island City. Yeah. Um, 
and this was something that happened or came to be during a shift at Little Branch, I believe, in 2007. He approached me casually at the bar during the middle of a shift and said, would you like to open a bar in Queens? And just as he didn't blink when he made that martini, I did not blink either. Uh, and at the end of my shift, in the tip jar was a check for 100 and I won't disclose the exact figure, yeah. but there was a large check in the tip jar, <laughs> which Michael Madrasan said, Richie, I believe this is for you because you couldn't divide that number uh, amongst the staff. <laughs> um, and it took me two years to build the bar using tip money to buy lumber. And at the end of my shift, I'd go to the job site in Queens and it was myself and two septuagenarian Hungarian men say that fast, uh, who, who built the bar. It was a running joke. When are you going to open? Two weeks. When are you going to open? Two weeks. Well, we finally opened, but it was two years later. And we were in significant arrears uh, for rent. Um, but 13 years later, here we are. Um, and in those early days, um, we... We're, we're operating on brass tacks and, and elbow grease. We, we didn't have all the bells and whistles that we do today behind the modern bar, yeah. but, but we were carrying and continuing our tradition uh, of drink making and ice production and, and all of the things that we're known for today. Uh, so another opportunity arose to open another venue, and it came quickly, uh, surprisingly, and, and, and I decided to entertain that opportunity mm -hmm. uh, and even after the two-year <laughs> ordeal i'm sure yeah. it was fun at certain points but i'm sure it was also very difficult it was but even it was, yeah it was um as as anyone who has sat here and spoken with you about the uh endeavor that is opening a cocktail yeah. bar of, of any kind or any business really um it's daunting and there's there's no preparation yeah. and and it's um but you had you you know you you'd gone through that experience. It's it's exciting. I mean everything's everything's at full right. So you've gone through that. This opportunity comes up again, and you're like, yeah, I'm I'm ready to go sure. back in for that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it, and the concept, if you will, the 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 genre that was decided for this new bar, which was occupying an old space of the old uh, East Side Company Bar, which was one of Sasha's bars um, on Essex Street. It was decided that it would be a, a tiki bar of sorts. And in New York City at that time, this style of cocktail bar was all but absent. Um, Otto Shrunken Head was still around. Um, in fact, I think Lonnie Kai might have already been open at that time. Um, but really, there was not much within that realm of of cocktails uh, and, and, and drink-making to choose from. So this was a... We thought it was a good opportunity to... Yeah. to um, but let it be known that um, this was very much a New York City style of tiki that we intended to bring forth. Um, there wasn't so much of the tropical huts and the lays and the and the grassy decor. There was actual New York City subway graffiti from yeah. old friends of mine um, who painted the place, and we didn't really play, uh, for lack of a better term, the Martin Denny Luau yeah. music. It, it was 
New York City hardcore punk rock and hip hop. <laughs> so um, it was a different brand of tiki. Uh, and and again, we we didn't have uh, representation from the Pacifica project back then to consult with. Uh, we we just we rolled out our brand, and there are some parts of it that I may not necessarily be proud of in retrospect. Mm-hmm. But I think that we were, for the most part understanding and patient and respectful because our brand of tiki was not your typical Don the Beachcomber right. uh, uh, version of, of, of what uh, what Western escapism yes. uh, through, through tiki cocktails should represent. So uh, all of this is to say that uh, in preparation for opening this, this bar... Um, which did you have a name at the time for it or we we named it painkiller yes so i i I was wondering because um and i'm sure many people will be familiar with that listening but i was i I was curious because you hadn't mentioned it before i didn't know whether that was not something you'd known at the time but yeah so this is painkiller we named it painkiller um we actually never registered that as the dba we never did business as that name but that was the name um that was the the default name for this bar. In fact, on the front door, it only said Tiki Bar. It didn't even say Painkiller. Um, so in in doing research for, for these drinks that, as I mentioned earlier, we were not deeply familiar with, uh, we didn't have the experience that people like, within our peer group, people like Brian Miller, who in my estimation and in my opinion to this day, remains uh, the foremost authority uh on tiki in new york city on tropical cocktails he's the oracle as far as that is concerned within our peer group uh and i i always defer to him as uh having made and 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 brought forth the most incredible tiki cocktails during that time especially with tiki mondays which was uh, a blast to behold and and also what he accomplished there i think uh some of my best experiences uh, with with this style of drinking cocktails. Um, so we had to do our homework because you had Brian, you had Jeff, Barry, you had people who were were leading the charge, holding the torch, for lack of a better term, and we didn't know very much. <laughs> Quite honestly, we could make a good Mai Tai, yeah, perhaps, um, <laughs> but but the rest of these drinks were foreign to us. So I got to doing my research in mid to late. 2009 and by early 2010 i'd come up with a fairly decent list of drinks that i thought would be a good head start a good initial start for our cocktail program um you had some that were typical i mentioned the mai tai yeah things like a pearl diver things like a of course a painkiller the namesake of the bar um, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, and then, and then others that were n- somewhat more obscure. And then I stumbled on this jungle bird. Um, and that's, uh, one of the first specs and recipes that I worked on quite meticulously behind the bar at Dutch kills. Um, and I sent an email to a few of the people that I was working with at the time, um, back in 2010, mm-hmm. illustrating all of these drinks, mm-hmm. all of the specs. Here's, I was very excited, guys. Here's what I think we should, we should yeah. 
taste some of these drinks and we should consider them for our, mm-hmm. for our forthcoming menu. Uh, and that is my, uh, or was my initial discovery of the, uh, jungle bird cocktail and we can talk more about it Mm -hmm. how i came about this bet yeah and and and, and yeah i was wondering which which kind of book of the of the books that you mentioned earlier where where did you come across that and was there yeah was there a moment as well when you saw that and you were like oh wow not heard of this before like this looks interesting yeah it was it was it was intoxica it was intoxica was jeff barry's book um i i thought the first of all the the Pairing of, of uh, lime, sugar, pineapple—that's a given. That's always yep. uh, always going to work if you if you uh, if you know what you're doing. Behind the bar, you can make that work. Um, and we we'd made plenty of pineapple daiquiris in that realm in at that, Dutch Kills. Mm-hmm. That was one of the staple cocktails that we always uh, used to make, still do. Um, and then the, these these distinct, well, it, quite interesting because, as I said. Jeff doesn't specify what style of Jamaican rum. He yeah. says Jamaican rum. So Jamaican rum is known for its like predominant grassy funk. They yeah. call it hogo, right? Um, and that that's always been very um, attractive to bartenders, at least of this modern era, mm-hmm. um, along with other spirits in, in that style. Um, a lot of times you can blind taste very rowdy uh, rums and, yep. and, and sugarcane distillates and even next to agave distillates and and even throw some cachaça in there and most bartenders will be confused. But but they'll recognize that underlying funk. Yeah. Uh, and so I was attracted to that with this cocktail. Um, the first bottle that I touched uh, to make this drink with was actually Karuba. Mm-hmm. Um, which is yeah? Uh, can you describe that for us for for anyone who might not be familiar with that particular rum? Right. So it's a high ester, one hundred percent Jamaican rum, uh, made by J. Ray and nephew. Yeah. Ironically, who, who is now owned by Grupo Campari, but we'll get to Campari in a mm-hmm. moment. It's hard for me to say Campari, but yeah. Campari, right? Um, and it's it's a it's in the old uh, planter style um, of of rum. It's Probably one of the most historically go-to mixers in that style. You have your uh, planter's punch. You're going to make it with uh, probably with Karuba or Myers, yeah, most likely uh, if you're talking uh, from days of yore. Um, but it's it's a blend of over thirty rums, uh, pot and column still, um, aged for I think at least two years. Um, but ironically. <laughs> Karuba dark rum is uh, distilled and imported from Jamaica, but it's not commercially distributed there, which is strange. That's um, very weird. The other thing that 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 intrigued me about Karuba um, is that uh, Trader Vic back in his day was rumored to have used up the entire supply of Karuba dark, or sorry, of J of J Ray and nephew, uh, fifteen and seventeen years. So the world supply of that rum was used by Vic in his my time. <laughs> How that happened, I don't know, but but he supposedly swapped that out when there was no more left and and used Karuba Dark as his substitute in his mai tai. Uh, so I imagine that Karuba or any variety of what is now known as black, um, and we'll get to this, but black strap mm-hmm. rum would have been an interesting addition to that Jungle Bird. So that's what I initially 
touched behind the bar when I started uh, experimenting with this cocktail. Amazing. And then, of course, the the, the final um, component there being Campari, which I guess a lot of people are very familiar with. Um, in a minute, we're gonna we're gonna do a we're gonna do a deep dive on each one of those ingredients sure. and just you know maybe a little bit more. Or, but I was just wondering initially. So you you know you, you start experimenting with this. You obviously do a lot of, of kind of research um, experimentation. You put it on the menu. Is this one of those drinks? Is this, was this on the menu from day one when you opened Painkiller? And is this one of those drinks that was like an instant hit? People were loving it, or is this one of those kind of creepers and words slowly spread, but then maybe the industry folks pick it up first? It was a sleeping giant, and that's actually the name of a, one of the punches that we served. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of the tiki punches that we served at the bar it was a long form. is delicious, sleeping giant, if you fancy those kind of drinks that's a it's a good one but yes this was a sleeping giant on the menu but mostly the the initial reaction to this cocktail and and fascination with this cocktail came mostly from bartenders yep um because it hits all the as i said earlier it's all the right notes but campari is or was it's a love it or hate it Yep, modifier, or as far as I'm concerned, it's a delicious spirit on its own. But uh, you have several delicious cocktails from Trader Vic, such as the Camparinet, or uh, and, then, and then there's other stirred straight up cocktails. The Boulevardier at that time was very popular. Wow, now it's ubiquitous, but yep. at that time it was gaining popularity um, in these bars. Uh, so it was very interesting for people to to see the reaction of people to the herbaceous nature of Campari with all of the aforementioned ingredients in the jungle bird. Um, and I think that we'll get into this when we talk about the somewhat final version of this cocktail, but mm -hmm. the robust depth, I think that was achieved with this cocktail with the addition of blackstrap rum. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that rum specifically as opposed to Karuba, and they are somewhat related, um, was the real game changer for yeah. everyone. And and you, you've touched upon it there, but this is a question that I always ask, and I'm, I'm really keen to hear if you're making or if you're handed a jungle bird, what are you looking for from that drink specifically? And yeah, what what sets a what sets a very good version apart? It, the the very boring answer is balance. But again, this is almost a cocktail that is difficult to achieve balance with because of the components that seem to be somewhat at odds with one another. Because you've you've got inherent sweetness in your pineapple juice with with your with your sugar. Whether you use a, a simple syrup, a rich Simple syrup, two to one, a demerara syrup. But yep. no matter what, you've got this inherent sweetness. Uh, and then when you come at it with a a very vegetal or grassy, funky, earthy, bitter rum, uh, and and of course campari, which is a bitter yeah. liqueur in and of itself, with with all of these similar notes, um, it, it almost seems like a contrast. Yeah. So when we go back to 
the early days at Milk and Honey in Little Branchwood, I was able to learn from my training, and it remains with me to this day, is that there are three defining factors to a successful cocktail. That would be balance, which we just discussed, and that's in the hands of whoever's behind the bar. So if your bartender errs in the direction of a quarter ounce even, when they're even jiggering your cocktail, prior to introducing ice, then the cocktail is off balance right away. Yeah. So that, that, that's yeah. a very hard note to strike. The two other defining factors in a successful cocktail are water content and temperature, which relate directly to ice. Yep. So when when it came time to perfect or do my best to perfect this Jungle Bird cocktail, those were the challenges, is that how can I make these things make sense? Yeah, well, and you said there before, and this is going to be a boring answer, and that's balance. And I see what you're saying there, but at the same time, I would challenge anyone who's ever tried to come up with a cocktail or make a cocktail knowing ingredients but not knowing the spec for it. Balance, when you find that point, is a eureka moment. It's 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 euphoric because yeah. it's very difficult. Um, yeah. You talk about the the Campari and and this you know very vegetal character heavy rum. It, I started thinking about a martini. I'm always thinking about martinis, <laughs> but I started thinking about martini because it reminds me of you know vermouth with all of its aromatics and gin with all of its botanicals. These impossibly complex ingredients on their own that they somehow find this marriage together is just, is just perfect. It's, it's magical. Um, and that's balanced. So you should, that's wonderful. You should look at this drink on paper and think, I really, I really like this already. Yeah. But yet to make it work, to make those components, as you said, with, with all of these different elements and, and, and tasting notes from all of these flavors. And it wasn't easy, although it was seemingly, a marriage that was meant to be. Yeah. And that's something that always, again, makes me think that cocktails are quite magical. The fact that these formulas can be repeated and work time after time again and that these ingredients work together, I don't know. That's what blows me away every time. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, one of the many joys of, of, uh, of this profession. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so let's do our dive here on ingredients, starting, of course, with rum, which is what I know you would always be happy to start with yourself personally, but specifically the rum for this drink. You've hinted at Blackstrap. You've hinted that there's a conversation happening there or something to consider. Can you give us the context for that and also the rum that you gravitate towards yourself? Yeah, um, so rum is is probably my favorite no, it, it is my favorite all-purpose spirit uh, all the time. It's what I want to drink. I find it to be so versatile, um, not only for the fact that it's produced in more countries uh, all over the planet than anything else, but um, also because it's uh, it's so dynamic in every different way. And this, the the rums that we're talking about today are just one, just one. In fact, maybe uh, small, if I should say, and I don't want to diminish the uh, character of this rum, but one small percentage of, of the world that is rum production. Yet, as we'll, we'll get into, uh, 
the backbone of this spirit, if you will, is present in almost every variety of rum that, that is uh, produced in Spanish and English-speaking uh, islands or territories. So, as we all know, the rum, it all begins as sugarcane. Um, but we're going to focus on this particular style of black rum or black strap rum, and you personally have written about this. Uh, so it's an article that everyone should read. I am, I am surprised and embarrassed <laughs> to hear that you have done that. I, I have many times. I did not realize. Yeah. but So you're, you're about to hear things that are very, very familiar. But um, what what is interesting to me and what was interesting to me back then when I reached for that bottle uh, is to make this Jungle Bird, is that um, this... The, the stillers of, of Spanish and English style rum favor molasses as opposed to the French style, which is derivative of, of uh, cane juice. Um, so the, what is molasses? It's, it's the crystallized form of this uh, sticky, dark syrup that's left behind after the, the cane juice is thrice boiled. Um, so it's a, a basically a byproduct there. Um, and the final cycle, the final, the third cycle of this process yields uh, what's called blackstrap molasses, or sometimes it's referred to as final molasses, um, yet it's the lowest sugar cane, uh, lowest sugar content mm -hmm. of, of any cane product. So why we all know molasses traditionally is something that's used in, in confectionery applications, baking, and things yeah. of that nature. It tends to be uh, moderately sweet, a uh, little bit more viscous, luscious, rich, but in comparison, blackstrap is very sludgy. It's like um, treacle. Exactly, exactly. Um, just the way less sugar content, darker, bitter, earthy, salty, um, different consistency. So blackstrap historically was a term that was used uh, for a rum that used a grade of molasses with very low uh, sugar content. So, however, <laughs> however, <laughs> it should be noted um, that Although few few producers use blackstrap as the 100%, for lack of a better term, mash bill, if you will, yeah. if you're applying that term, um, for the base of their rums, uh, rums labeled as blackstrap are typically not very different from other styles of rum and how they're produced. So, um, in fact, in we can quote uh, Richard Seal from Foursquare, who says there's no such thing as blackstrap rum at all then all all rum you shouldn't speak of it because all rum is made with some portion of this final molasses or this final yeah uh right this this blackstrap this, this lowest grade Ex exactly um yeah. byproduct right so if you're making rum from molasses you're going to use some some yep. percentage of this at some point so yet now we have this unofficial category yeah um and it, it, it's it's distinct flavor profile was is somewhat created on purpose to mimic these earthy, salty, savory tones um, of the blackstrap molasses, either by adding the molasses itself or uh, other sweeteners or flavorings. Um, but th these tasting notes that you typically get, this toffee, this celery, this fennel, the, the, the unsweetened chocolate, they're really just primarily unaged rums that are made or doctored to be this inky, dark, deep, rich, uh, funky concoction, uh, for lack of a better term. And I digress a little bit, but I will say that 
this is yet another interesting aspect in the in the category of rum um and it lends itself beautifully to this cocktail mm-hmm. um what kind of rum do i like to drink i think that's what you asked me initially <laughs> um I I've, I very much favor Demerara style rum, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I actually use it in this cocktail together with the right. um, with the blackstrap. Um, but but blackstrap would be your preference for this for this for this for I, this cocktail. I, I kind of split the base. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I digress a little bit from the original recipe that we were making at the Painkiller DQR, okay. otherwise known as. PKNY, but PK. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that if you want or not. But uh, but yeah, I I now add um, Demerara rum. To, okay, to so my... you, you and you split that, and that's just because uh, obviously Blackstrap is is very complex itself. Is that to almost add more nuance or to maybe tame it a little? The overall. Yeah, I, I don't like to use the term softening or rounding, but it does knock the corners off and knocks the edges off a little bit and gives it a little bit more depth. Um, and it's it's just so rich and, mm-hmm. and luscious and lovely, and it's got such... The aromatics are very different. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're more ripe fruit, and, and I really enjoy that in yeah. this cocktail. And the next ingredient in this cocktail that we'll talk about is Campari. I think most people very familiar with Campari as an ingredient. So the question that I wanted to ask you is, is it because of Campari's flavor profile also being very bold, also being in your face, maybe challenging the first time that you drink it, that it needs something similar from the rum side? Otherwise, this maybe ceases to become a rum cocktail or the rum just gets lost. It's so strange. I don't know why it's there. I don't know why it's there. Uh, but it, <laughs> but it, it definitely when when we talk about different specs and specific uh, quantities and percentages, if you let it cut through, if you let it cut through, and you and you and you make your drink just dry enough that yeah. it can come through, it's unlike any other cocktail. Yeah, it really isn't. And we can go back to Trader Vic for a moment. He said. Most cocktails, whatever the name, are just slight variations of a few good standard recipes. And the inventor just substitutes one flavoring for another, Mm -hmm. changes the proportions or adds a dash of this or a drop or two of that, and gives the concoction another name, which is what we're doing every night in every cocktail bar the world over. Yeah. Um, But that that Campari, it's just... And we're learning so many interesting things about Campari now from... uh, David Wondrich and Noah Rothbaum's recent revelations about yeah. how it's uh, more it's got more of an Anglophile influence than an Italianate influence mm-hmm. uh, than we might have realized and that's brilliant to discover but um, yeah it, it, it if it comes through just enough if it if it gets through the rum and the juice and the sugar and gives you just that that slight needle of Campari on the back end of the cocktail, it's a delicious, uh, unrivaled yeah. drink. And this is a complete aside as well, but on the flip side of that, I always find it interesting when the Negroni is described as a gin cocktail because for me it's a Campari cocktail. <laughs> I, 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 I don't yeah. get yeah. the gin, especially if we're using maybe some of these lighter styles these days. But anyway, that's a 
that's an aside. We're going to talk about that because you you, you rang my bell in, in a way. We'll talk about that at the uh, when we do our five questions. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so, next question, next ingredient, pineapple. We've 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 had a conversation about this actually recently about um, for the for the pina colada episode. Of course, yeah. Um, I'm keen to hear your take. What was happening back in the day? What's happening now? Is it fresh? Are you using a blend? Um, where do you go with that? It's a, it's a tough one. But it's it's actually something I think about a lot. Um, so this cocktail is celebrated for its pairing of rum and a, a bitter Italian liqueur, if you want to call it amaro, but that's splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. But that's what we're talking about now uh, up until this point, and that's what most people mention. They say... This is a, a rum cocktail with Campari. Wow. But in my opinion, maybe not the most important, but I would say, yeah, the true catalyst that binds all of these ingredients in this cocktail could could very well be the addition of, of pineapple juice because what you're getting is this creamy, frothy, foamy yes. uh, cocktail. And, and that, that comes from a good hard shake, uh, of course. But pineapple juice is like other ingredients that have enzymes and protein it it, it creates this froth yeah. or foam because of the enzymes and the protein it has so a strong but it has a high protein content very much rich, yeah very much not so much carbohydrate i've heard people say it's it does it's only because it's starchy but that's not really true it's, it doesn't have much carbohydrate it's the protein but, we're looking yeah, for in this respect protein and enzymes so mm-hmm. but yeah and so when you're uh when you're juicing pineapples at a higher speed uh, depending on what kind of juicer you're using, but the, the the higher the RPMs on the juicer, the more air gets into the juice, the foamier your your juice is going to be. So, like, uh, we're we're getting a little deeper into this maybe than you want to, but the centrifugal juicers they they redline at higher RPMs, so at yeah, say ten thousand. Um, so they're always going to create more foam. Um, but an auger juicer is a little more gentle. It's at like a hundred, hundred and fifty RPM. Um, at a slower speed, so depending on the juicer, but this will minimize the amount of foam. And then, of course, if you do other things to your pineapple juice, like you're, you're fine straining many times or you're clarifying, this reduces the presence of foam even further. So in this cocktail, that foam, uh, that head, that creaminess, that, that, that silky aspect is really what brings the jungle bird together. Mm-hmm. Um, it would almost taste flat without it. And just so that I'm understanding this correctly, are you are you saying then that you want to eliminate those that influence as much as possible when you're preparing your pineapple juice so that it maintains within the juice? Is that what you're saying? Then? I'm saying that you, when you make your juice, and it's a great question, when you make your juice, when you're prepping for service and you make your juice, you, you want to skim some of the foam. You don't want to make that the primary element that, that winds up in your bottle. In fact, you don't want to see very much of it. Yeah. Um, but when you shake this cocktail and you want to shake it hard, you want to reintroduce that aspect to the drink. So Got you. Not, you wouldn't dry shake it, but it's not dissimilar to what is achieved from an egg white cocktail or what people were doing a few years ago with the aquafaba as an yep. alternative. I haven't experimented much with that myself, but it, it, it brings those elements um to to it reminds me of that when i when yeah. i see or when you see or when anyone sees a, a a solid shaken pineapple cocktail yeah coming over the bar 
It's it's unmistakable. Um, next, lime. Yeah, yeah. Tough one because we get here in New York City, and especially since we're we're coming back into service after the last two years, you, you'll get your produce delivery, and your limes will will be tiny. And how are you supposed to yield tiny and expensive? And how are you supposed to yield? the requisite amount of juice for service from a tiny lime. It's, it's very confusing, but sometimes this will happen mm-hmm. um, typically, but uh, lime. Yeah. So I, I know you, we talked about this and it's unavoidable. We're going to talk about Sasha Petrosky in nearly every episode, but um, <laughs> of, of your, of your, of your ongoing story. Um, but one thing that Sasha told us um, prior to service, and we would prep our own juice and uh, and cut our own garnishes and have our rituals prior to service. But one thing that he was pretty strict about, or I wouldn't say strict, but I'd say adamant about, was that you should taste the quality of your limes and your lime juice prior to the start of service so that you know if you need to scale back in any way. So if you're maybe having to do a scant one ounce pour on your daiquiri because your limes are too acidic. You, you yep. wouldn't be able to actually take out equipment and, and measure your pH levels at, at milk and honey back in the day, but you would you would taste it. And if you were making a caipirinha, which uses the actual fruit, are you releasing too much of the oils when you're muddling? Well, you should taste the fruit. And so to answer your question, um, you have to be intimate and familiar with all your produce and all your juice that's going into yeah. your, into your cocktail, especially this one, because you've got a different citrus dynamic or a different fruit dynamic um, coming mm-hmm. into play. So interesting that you say that, because I actually recently had a daiquiri made for me, and I asked the bartender what their spec was, and he said, I don't have one. He said, whatever it tastes like on the day which I found very interesting as well because, I mean, on the one hand, daiquiri specs are something that people identify themselves by. And on the other, that's exactly what we're trying to do with this show, which is going beyond the recipe and and talking about these things. I do appreciate and respect people who don't make plans. It's got to <laughs> be an amazing way to live your life in, in many ways, but, but I cannot identify with that philosophy because I'm bound in many ways to the to the mores and techniques of my training. And yeah. I, th- I feel that, and there are different schools of, of getting back to the daiquiri and specs of, of how this drink should be prepared. Um, going back to, uh, and, and this was a, another foray we made into frozen cocktails, but going back to Constantino de Bailagua um, in, in Cuba, um, and his daiquiri, and how are we going to apply our daiquiri spec to a frozen daiquiri? And of course, it, the Petrosky spec doesn't work as a frozen daiquiri. No. You have to adjust it. So, um, and this is a, another conversation, but it's very important not to stay uh, set in stone and, and to, to be open to exploring uh, other options when it comes to understanding new variations of cocktails because that was essentially the entire process of coming from where we came from to open a tiki bar in New York city. 
Wonderful. And I, I, I do think as well that bartender was probably slightly tongue-in-cheek. I think he was probably more hinting upon what you were talking about there back in the day, being like, is it going to be a scant answer? Is it going to be one ounce? You know, and I think maybe that's what he was alluding to, but also just being kind of... How was know. the daiquiri? It was a good daiquiri. It was actually how I like my daiquiri, which is not piercingly sour... There's a good amount of sweetness in there, but for my palate, it was it was balanced, and yeah, and people that go so low on simple, I just I worry about the body of that cocktail. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> no, it's good. It's a good good conversation to have. So final final ingredient before we we dive into the the modern spec that you would use today, um, sweetening agent. Are you going simple? Are you going demerara? Are you going rich? What's the thinking? Right. Yeah, so when I wrote that email, and I suppose Google saves these things. In fact, I've provided you with a copy today. <laughs> um, when I wrote that email saying uh, to, to, to the people I was working with, hey, this is the spec that I have in mind for this cocktail. And I think that, that the one that I wrote is identical to the one that has endured. Yep. Um, but we'll talk about the changes I've made personally to, to my interpretation of this cocktail. Initially, it was simple syrup. Um, yeah. and that works. It, 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 it's delicious. Um, but I found that over the, uh, over the years from 2010 to 2012, as we kept serving this cocktail at painkiller, PKNY, whatever you'd like to call it now, uh, long, long departed, um, the addition of Demerara. So two to one rich Demerara syrup, uh, gave this cocktail a different a different life for me um, and, and, and actually made it more robust. I don't want to say austere, I'll say robust. Um, yeah. and, it, and it helped really dig in to the black strap, which can be pungent yeah. um, in excess. And I think that the initial spec that I first brought forth with one and a half ounces is too much which is why I now split that with one ounce blackstrap, half ounce Demerara rum. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, are we allowed to name specific brands? Of on course, yeah, of yeah, course. So, <laughs> so um, historically, of course, Lemonheart was the pinnacle of Demerara rum in, in, in the uh, tiki bars of the days of yore. Mm -hmm. So if you were able to get your hands on the, the higher ABV uh expression of that that was wonderful um the 80 i believe was the other um that we were using at the time um but of course uh, now with some eldorado 12 uh in this cocktail it's it's divine amazing yeah so let's let's do it let's dive into the spec and can you also tell me your your technique talk us through you making the drink as if as if you were making it here in front of us and 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 which ingredients you're adding when and why and yeah let's go through it yeah so um the we can talk about what what we did then what we do now or um but the standard practice when training bartenders and and working with a bartender for the first time is you think about which ingredients you're jiggering first you think about how many different jiggers you're using, what ingredients can you overlap, what ingredients shouldn't you overlap. Your order of operations is paramount. Yeah. When you're when you're in deep in service, uh, 
in the weeds behind the bar. But we're just talking <laughs> or in about the shit. If we're, you're in the UK, that's yeah, that's, that's what it, we say. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> that's what we say in London. That's the first. I'm glad you swore first before me. I'm glad <laughs> now, it was you. <laughs> now on the podcast, when you go to download it, it's going to say that little e next to it. So feel free to can, feel free to let it rip, can, Richie. When, now my mom will will know that you're the one that cursed. Yeah, so in the shit indeed, as we have been many nights, um, and we're talking about one drink here, so we can set the order of operations aside, but theoretically, if I'm pouring the more expensive ingredients first and I make a mistake, you're going to be annoyed with me if you're my boss. And You might say you might be pissed off with you. You might be pissed off. You would be, be livid. <laughs> you'd, you'd become indignant. Uh, you would perhaps be ornery, even. Um, so... Yeah, so th- we'll start with the sugar and the and the juice, the citrus, because although you're paying someone perhaps to prep that for you, the cost is negligible before mm. you get to the bottled spirits. So, um, whereas we used to do a half ounce simple syrup and a half ounce lime juice, that was the original spec that I put together in, in, in that long lost email. Um, now we're doing three quarter ounce demerara and we're doing like a scant uh seven eighths ounce scant one ounce so it becomes like seven eighths in your jigger of lime juice mm-hmm. and is that rich demerara sorry two to one correct okay correct. so uh, and and to be transparent if all you find is turbinado in 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 your grocery store or your your purveyor of 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 uh sundry goods brings you your delivery for the day at your restaurant or your bar and that's you're not getting demerara you can substitute but if it's rich two to one it's going to do the trick it, even cane syrup yeah will work nice um, but this is where we're at we're at that yeah now we're at that three-quarter demerara scant one ounce slime um with the pineapple juice we'll we'll go there next we talked about that foamy creamy frothy mm-hmm. aspect Initially, we were doing one and a half ounce. I believe a lot of people still are. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. I'm not here to disparage mm-hmm. what is happening. I think what is happening all over the world is great. I, I'll drink this cocktail anywhere, however you want to prepare it. But for my money, I took it down to an ounce and a quarter. A couple different reasons. Um, again, we talked about you want that Campari to poke through. Yep. Um, you don't want this drink to be cloying. With the two-to-one rich demerara, that becomes a risk. So you take the pineapple down a little bit, um, which is what we've done since then. Uh, if you if you shake it properly, you're still going to get that delicious creaminess. That 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 aspect is still there. So you take down the the, the pineapple a little bit, and and again, this drink is is very tall. So yes, you're gonna need and and if you're putting a big rock in there, as we do large single format piece of ice you're going to need a big almost a 14 ounce double old-fashioned glass 13 to 14 ounces yeah. so it's a it's a high wash line anyway um and we can that's an entirely different conversation but uh next we're sticking with the three-quarter ounce of campari that was in the initial recipe that that i reworked from jeff berry specs and that's what we're sticking with here um and now whereas the Blackstrap rum from from the recipe at, at Painkiller was one and a half ounces. Now we're splitting one ounce Blackstrap, half ounce Demerara. Mm-hmm. And preference on brand, if you care to share, you don't have to. 
yeah, like I said, the, the, the Blackstrap, it's the same. We're using Crujan still mm-hmm. uh, 12 years later, um, or actually when PKNY closed in 2013. So it's nine years later, nine, ten, years. nine ten years. So we're still using that uh, Eldorado 12 for the uh, Demerara. Again, there's myriad other amazing options. What's happening with rum where it's being produced in the in the Caribbean aged in Europe, there's, there's incredible things. We could drop names for brands all day, but um, again, this drink getting back to balance. If you use the rum of your preference, it will still be a lovely cocktail. Mm -hmm. Um, This is just what we've chosen to use. Um, And our methods with shaking with one single piece of ice, as opposed to smaller. So you're going one, um, and this is a conversation we'll have another day when Absolutely. it comes to ice. You know, Absolutely. we've spoken about it with our with our friend Mr. Alperin beforehand too. But this, the the ice business is something you know a ton about. But in terms of for for people's common reference, you're shaking this drink. You're shaking it with one cold draft size cube, or you're using cold draft cubes yourselves, even at, at, at Dutch Kills now? We have never. Never, never. okay. Uh, Dutch Kills. Is that an insensitive question of me no, to ask there? No, sir. Okay. Absolutely not. Again, going back to methods and specs, we choose to do things our particular way because it works best for us. I don't mm-hmm. say me, I say us. I'm not there alone and I never have been. Mm-hmm. It works for us at the bars where I preside. If I worked at your bar and you chose to shake with a different style of ice, then I would have to respect your methods and make the best possible cocktail that we could make together there. Mm -hmm. So we are not going to discuss that now, but we will later probably Mm -hmm. at at another date. Um, What I will say is with ice, and I've said this many times, size matters Mm -hmm. tremendously both for shaking and for drinks that are built in the glass. Um, and even drinks like this Jungle Bird that are shaken and served down uh, on a big rock. But above all, uh, water content and temperature are the other two defining factors. And if you shake this with several smaller soggy cubes, you're introducing more water content immediately in the shaker than you might not want which will upset the balance of the cocktail once you strain it into the glass. Mm-hmm. So um, we treat this like our, for for example, because it's shaken and, and served down, getting back to the, the gold rush and, yeah. Oh, yeah. and, and it's, and it's a uh, distant cousin, but way more popular penicillin perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the, and the, and the, the margarita on the rock, all of these shaken and served down cocktails follow this formula yeah whereby yeah we need to be extremely careful to not over dilute i mean any cocktail but specifically when we're then serving it on a rock always and it comes back Mm. and 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 it goes on that rock because theoretically that rock if you're pulling it from your freezer during service is going to go into your glass bone cold Mm -hmm. you can temper it a little bit but it's going to go in bone cold as opposed to within a room temperature ice bin that's just beneath or next to your well where everything is at 32 degrees and it's got yeah. surface melt already and, mm-hmm. and solid and liquid are parting ways. So if it's coming from the freezer, it's going to prolong the life of your drink uh, and will help mitigate that phase change whereas yep. your rock will 
hopefully based on the ambient temperature in your bar, melt slower and release less water content yep. into your final cocktail. And just so, just to back up two steps there, when it comes to shaking, you said with one with one cube, um, you guys are hand cutting ice. What what kind of size cube would that be roughly that you're using to shake this drink? Right. So we we initially in the in the milk and honey and little branch days are part of our side work, which was three hours long. So just imagine mm-hmm. all of our friends at all of our other beloved New York City cocktail institutions were laughing at us because they'd go and they'd open the, the ice bin yeah. and take the bucket out and there there were their that was their ice. The rest of us were going three hours prior to our shift, <laughs> taking the ice out of the freezer, <laughs> taking uh, blunt implements and tapping out different shapes and sizes for service, and then refilling the pans and putting them back in the freezer for the next uh, bartender to retrieve them the next day and the cycle continues. So mm-hmm. that was the standard. Um, things changed a little bit over the years. They've become a little more mechanized and industrialized. And yep. now we have our own ice company and, and mm-hmm. things are different now. But the the shape uh, that is ideal and, and now uniform, we used to say that our ice was like snowflakes, that no one was the same, <laughs> but they were all uniform in service. Well, now they're all mostly the same. They're just a little different from the ones that come out of the machine. So... Mm-hmm. Um, they're about 1.75 by 1.7, uh, by, uh, by two. So they're, they're yeah. just tall and, and thin. So they're just a little bit, yeah. um, a little bit slimmer and taller, mm-hmm. but still one uniform shaking cube. And what does that accomplish? Well, if it comes out of the freezer very cold, you're not adding water content inherently. Your idea is not to shake it, to break it. The idea is to shake it to make it. So yeah. yes, you want to knock the corners off and you want to add some water content, but you don't want to destroy the cube and create a slushy in your shaker. Yeah. And and, and the, the the size of the cube itself uh, allows you to also achieve great aeration. And, and a drink like this that we're talking about today in the Jungle Bird, that's of mm-hmm. utmost importance. Yeah. And then... You mentioned it there before. This is a drink that we're serving in. Um, we'll talk about your preferred glassware, but this is we're going to serve this up again over in an ideal world, large rock of preferably hand cut ice. Right. Um, yeah, but what would what would be your preferred glass for this? And also straining. Yeah. Hawthorne double. What's your What's your opinion? Yeah, the Hawthorne strainer closed the gate. Strain your cocktail. Uh, you can you can opt to strain your cocktail and then add your ice. Typically, we do like a two by three rock. Uh, yeah, that's our kind of our standard rock for shaking down drinks and for old fashions and whatnot. Um, you can strain over that. You can add it after. But the important thing is, if your glass is cold and your ice is cold, your cocktail is going to have a little bit of extra help to stay cold. So anything that you can do to fight that battle. Uh, so yeah, strain. We don't opt to find strain. No. Um, we, we, we like the pulp to be mm-hmm. present. We like the cream and the foam to be present. Um, it's just, again, it's our choice. We, we like the mouthfeel of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we incorporate that into the cocktail. But as, uh, as Harry Craddock said, and this is more for shaken straight-up cocktails, but when you see those ice crystals, and I'm paraphrasing now, that the, the drink is still smiling at you. 
um, after you strain it. And you don't want chunks of ice floating in there. That's why you close the gate. And ideally, you can double up on your coils in your Hawthorne yeah. strainer. And that's a good trick that I'm sure has been Actually, widely. has not been shared on this before. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so you're you're taking another coil, you're adding in there, and you're making it a finer yeah, Hawthorne. Yeah, yeah. We I started doing that at, at Little Branch in Milk and Honey back in the day. Just it, it was back then. You had to kind of buy another strainer. So, right. That's so, that was what I was thinking yeah. about right there. Yeah. So you're you're shooting yourself in the foot a little mm. bit because now you're left with this thing and you don't know what to do with it um, mm. because it looks like a horseshoe crab mm. and what does it do? Well. You see necessity being the mother of invention. I, and I had such uh, brilliant, talented, and and crafty co-workers. Um, Michael Madrasan used to take the Hawthorne strainer without the, the coil, without the extra spring, and wedge it in his station so that shakers and jiggers and whatnot would not fall over the edge and into the sink. So it became like a backstop thing. Nowadays, you can get the, the, yeah. the springs on their own. But so. again, it's it's fascinating to hear about these early day MacGyver's hacks yeah. happening back then. We didn't have these, you know, the many supply companies and equipment companies that exist now. Um, forgive me, did you mention which glass or not? I didn't. I didn't specify brand, but I said... Or, uh, or type of. Yeah, uh, just between a 13 and three quarter ounce, so 13.75 ounce uh, double old fashioned or, or double mm -hmm. rocks class is with a nice, nice solid base, um, commercially available. And um, then <laughs> garnish. Yeah, garnish. Um, so with what I learned, what I learned is that when you operate a tiki bar, most of your money is spent on back of the house labor and garnishes that mm -hmm. that's most of your payroll and most of your overhead i should say um so the more luxurious lavish and and exaggerated um at that time was was better preferred <laughs> but preferred yeah uh because it really it, it attracted people to the to the drink to the cocktail and um it became every drink became a gimme when, when you made one, somebody else said, give me one of those. Um, so with, with the Jungle Bird, I've seen some really beautiful, really amazing things that people can do with uh, different parts of, of the fruit uh, and the pineapple in particular that would have normally been discarded. So mm -hmm. um, we would traditionally do some kind of a pineapple wedge, maybe an orange, a cherry, uh, some some of the pineapple leaves or fronds, mm -hmm. uh, put them behind all of the aforementioned and add your straw and, and, uh, Bob's your uncle. Robert is your mother's brother. It's <laughs> a nice way to put it. <laughs> You're supposed to say, don't talk about my mother. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I'll know for next time. <laughs> Richie, that's, that's amazing. What a, what an incredible exploration it would be remiss of me, though, not to, to, to give you one final floor for any final thoughts on the Jungle Bird, this conversation we've been having. Final thoughts on the Jungle Bird is that I'm really happy to still see it in the rotation. I'm excited about what bartenders are doing with this cocktail. Um, and I'm humbled to have had the opportunity to in some way have worked in a place that 
helped to reintroduce this drink uh, because I think that it's it was worth reintroducing and, and what's become of it is really amazing to see. And there's one more thing I forgot to mention uh, with, with our ingredients, by the way, uh, for, for our, our John Lubert is I This is why we give you that final chance, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, this is it. Uh, I realized later in life, as and, and you have to imagine that palates change with, yep. with time, right? So looking back at all of these books that even ones from 20 to 30 years ago go back 40, 50, 100 years, um, palates have changed, and, and even geographically. So I, I, add, I add a tiny pinch of smoked sea salt to my shaker after combining nice. all the ingredients and i find that it does something with the rum that 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 really brings out the the earthy funky rowdy grassy just the, yeah it brings out that 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 muddy element that um really appeals to my palate so just a little nice. tiny sprinkle of i'm glad yeah i'm glad we <laughs> I'm glad we stuck around for that one because I think that's a, a, a real pro tip. No doubt. Should we head into the final section of the show? Let's do this. Quick hit questions. I'm ready. Do I have to respond quickly? Or? No. Okay. Okay. They're not, they're not actually that quick. <laughs> I think about this every time that I say it. They're not that quick. And it's a, but anyway. It would be cool if you were like <laughs> pressure. Timer, yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah. Let's kick it off then. Question number one What style or category of spirit? typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar that can be professional or home up to you. I do not have a home bar. My home bar is Dutch kills. Um, to answer that question. I, I just, <laughs> so I just, I just, one in the same, I just don't take it home with me. Yeah. Um, at home, I think about motorcycles. So, uh, <laughs> but I will, I will give all props due uh, to Maddie Clark, who is our GM at Dutch kills. Who's been with us for over a decade. Um, since day one uh has conjured and curated an amazing agave distillate uh, yep. back bar selection which would have been unheard of <laughs> uh 10 years ago if we're talking right. about things that happened 10 years ago uh, we weren't doing that at dutch kills 10 years ago and certainly not at milk and honey and little branch back in the day so uh this i think is really has been a beautiful development um we've worked hard to put that together and i'm excited that we have it there fantastic question number two which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal and why is it a spare coil for your whole time training no. uh, could be, could, <laughs> so bonus bonus yeah. right bonus um it could be that that's that's actually i wouldn't have even thought of bringing that up again that is probably the most economical and undervalued <laughs> option. Um, I would, I would say that I was also going to think of uh, maybe something a bit more pedestrian, but um, maybe it's been more present nowadays. I haven't seen another bartenders uh, traveling kit in quite a while or, or watched what, what they're doing behind the bar in, in most places. But I would say um, not an ice pick, but a chisel. Yeah. Um, that's very on yeah. brand for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's in, it's in my wheelhouse. For <laughs> sure. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, if used properly, if wielded correctly, uh, it can deliver amazing results. So, uh, and there's, there's a 
bigger conversation, but I would say that it, it has been underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it might only apply, it, it might only apply to a service model like ours or yep. others who use the big ice. But if that's what you're using, you should have some, Something. some chisels and, and, and we can talk about how to modify them. Um, <laughs> but don't do this at home kids. It's the disclaimer. Do you want to tell us about that briefly or should we do that? Should, let's save, or should we save that for save, next time? Save it. Yeah. Or uh, all else I will say that, um, whenever, uh, using sharp implements behind the bar mm-hmm. and anyone who's ever used a peeler knows yep. the answer to this exercise caution. Yeah. Um, and the, be, be, be present in the task. It's not be having a chat with someone, you know, to go back to my illustrious former coworkers, uh, Michael McElroy used to remind me all the time, work fast, but jigger slow. And I apply that to ice, uh, ice, manipulation mm-hmm. <laughs> i say work slow and be careful nice because it's it's uh never a fun injury when you're using these sharp tools i think we'll and i think we'll get into those modifications at a, at a later date no doubt question number three what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry so I grew up here in New York City, and when you become a part of this beautiful world, this vast network of of bars and restaurants, and you get to travel the world, and you experience service the likes of which you never thought you would imagine from wherever you come from. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you're at the height of, of, of your career, at the apex of, of service, whether you're working for someone that you've always respected and appreciated or if you're on your own, in your own venue, I'll never forget one of my closest friends with whom I, I still share a friendship that's very close to this day reminded me, don't forget where you came from. Right, wrong, or indifferent, Always keep that with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has nothing to do with service. I could give you some kind of magical advice no. from Sasha Petrowski or any one of my mentors. It has nothing to do with that. I, I don't discount my education. Mm-hmm. But I was told to never forget where you came from because this life that we're in, there's more to it, and we all know that, obviously. So it's always important to remember your foundation before you ever set foot in a fancy cocktail bar. Wonderfully wise words. Penultimate question. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Defunct or currently operational? Either. I would have to say Sonny's Bar in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Tell us about that briefly. It's the most beautiful and important bar I've ever set foot in in my entire life. Nice. Everybody should visit. It's got a history in New York City. I think it's probably well known now, but when I was coming up, uh, it was always a place that felt like a touchstone. You had to make an effort to get there. Mm -hmm. Much like what Milk and Honey was. Yeah, Um, the destination. uh, For sure. Um, And the, the sounds and the sights and the feeling that you 
get when you walk in the door of that place. I've not had a, an experience in any bar in the world. Um, although I would say Frankie's in Sydney, Australia, I had a strange nostalgic sensation when I walked into that bar as well. But Sonny's in Brooklyn mm -hmm. for the history of my life, as long as I have been standing in front of bars as a customer, guest, mm -hmm. civilian. And I once had the true pleasure of serving behind that bar, which was a career highlight. Amazing. Um, that would be the place. Fantastic. Final question today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Negroni. Yeah? Um, the answer should be Presbyterian because that's the first cocktail I ordered at Little Branch and the first one I made as a bartender. Um, ordered and had to pay for it and then made it because I could. But mm -hmm. really, it would that would be for nostalgic reasons. But really, Negroni would be the one because it's it's the one. Fantastic. <laughs> and can I also just say that I believe you're the only person to date that sat in that seat of whom a drink of theirs was the answer to that question. That's Eric Alprin in the American trilogy. Uh, that that's and you have to that was a that was a co-authored drink with Michael McElroy. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is a very that's a that's a true compliment. Uh, and because Eric was so patient with me in the early days, one night when he was standing in front of me and I was at the service bar, gently reminded me with such patience and sincerity, Richie, there is no ginger in a pink lady. <laughs> so th the best mentor <laughs> and, and, and a very dear friend. So I'm humbled and honored that he would say mm -hmm. that. Fantastic. Well, Richie, you know, it's been a, it's been such a pleasure you know, talking septuagenarian Hungarians, giants they, and they shoulders, <laughs> shadows thereof. And of course, jungle birds. I look forward to sharing a few of them together someday. I look forward to it too. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Greenberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>